Lovely cat. That's Joan. She's invaded the pitch again. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 253 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can read. That must be your lamest fact ever, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting for me, I can tell you. I didn't realise how much I needed new glasses until I got new mm. glasses. But what a joy it is to be able to read without a headache. Yes. Yeah. Also, I didn't realise this until I was watching this week's Rated or Dated, but I own, it seems, the same glasses as Woody Harrelson in Indecent Proposal. Well, Mick, that's uh, vintage then. Yes? Yes? Is that what we'd call it? Vintaga. Vintaga, okay. darling. Uh, no, they're supposed to be from quite a cool shop. I thought I was being cool. No, but... Turns out I'm being Woody No, that Harrelson. is cool, isn't it? That's like a, what do they call it? Normcore. Okay. I'd rather be Firecrotch, I think. <laughs> they're the options, aren't they? A what? That's a succession reference. Come on, Hannah. Sorry. Yeah, I've been distracted by the barnacle meat, clearly. I am not up to date, just to say. I fucking love that line so much. Your ears are thick and chewy like barnacle Oh, yes, meat. I remember. Oh, dear. <laughs> Talking of barnacle meat, I'm Hannah Dunleaving, and I'm still impressed that some people can ride a horse and play a clarinet at the same time. Hannah, I often think that when I see people smoking whilst cycling. How do you do it? <laughs> Yeah. It's a level of impressed I was when I once saw a woman on a mobility scooter with a cigarette in one hand, a can of white lightning in the other, and on her phone, just steering with her knees. And I was like, wow, she could have totally been in the coronation, right? For real. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you guys watch it? I watched the official hatting, and that was it. I chanted, uh. hat, 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 <laughs> and then turned off. <laughs> I was sort of organising my best friend's baby shower at the time putting jelly babies on fairy cakes which uh, unbeknownst to me was going to make them look like uh, a plate of vaginas it did look like you'd um captured the actual birthing yeah. of jelly babies there it wasn't my intention but uh no so i saw bits of it like um penny mordon and her incredible arms bearing the sword yeah and i'm having some slightly uncomfortable feelings about her after that to be honest she looked like she was the ambassador from a planet that revered the Olympics or some shit, wasn't she? <laughs> it was very Grecian, very ancient Greek. Apparently she had that dress, like that outfit, the hat, the cape, the dress, whatever, which I thought was a very strong look. She sort of commissioned that herself. And I was thinking about this because I thought it was some sort of like a ceremonial garb, right? Mm. I thought she got it from Zara. <laughs> if only. <laughs> and... Um, I was thinking, do you have to like check in with someone and go, well, I'm planning to wear this or can you just like get whatever the fuck you like? Is it like being a bridesmaid? I would say you almost certainly have to well, check in with somebody. Well, I would have thought so, but it was... Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a bold look. It was it was quite a choice. I was less interested in that than I was in just the really random shit going on in the parade, which I, I don't know. Like I say, the, the people with clarinets and stuff. Because I sent Mickey a message. I was like, I haven't even got dressed today. <laughs> and there are people doing incredible things on television. This is ridiculous. This makes me feel very, very lazy. But there's, I only have a limited attention span for it. Because, yeah, I love history. But, yeah, I also don't like constitutional well, monarchies. Oh, and yeah. the amount of money, the 100 million that they spent is obscene, mm. isn't it, really? Yeah. What is it with leaders of state and paranoia about their hands because obviously Donald Trump and his tiny <laughs> hands and Charles is worried about his sausage fingers as Jen mentioned in last week's mail out 
what I thought was brilliant was an East End butchers were selling two special brands of sausage or two specially made sausages for the coronation. And one was called Charles's Fingers and right next to them was Camilla's Delight. <laughs> oh dear. When I saw um, Babbitton Day, I'm not even sure I knew what his second name was, to be honest. When I, I went to see him do a show the other day, I think now because he's been on uh, I'm a Celebrity, everyone just calls him Babbitton Day. So apologies that I don't know what his surname is. But he was calling Charles's fingers um, everything, everywhere, all at once fingers, which was <laughs> entertaining. It's uh, certainly more than a hint of gout about them, isn't there? Anyway, uh, speaking of traditional stuff, I don't know. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I'm steadying myself for a future of Morris dancing. Watching yeah. or performing, Jen? Not me. Uh, Lyra loves Morris dancing. Went out to see some uh, bank holiday shenanigans on Sunday, including Harwich's, I think they're called Leading Lights, I think is their, their official name. My mum knows quite a few of them. Obviously, they're, they're family friends. So we've seen the Morris dance before. Lyra was mesmerised. Absolutely loving life. Yeah, demanding hats, demanding sticks. It's the second time that we've seen them that she has inexplicably wanted to get her belly out as well at the same time. It's not something she routinely <laughs> does, but apparently in the company of Morris dancers, that's it. The sheer excitement. <laughs> it's just like, wowzers. Belly out. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? I'd keep an eye on that if I were you, Jen. I want to get air on my belly. Okay. I'm not sure I want you to, to be honest. So could, could we not? Wowzers. Oh, it's very hard to move on from that. <laughs> Coming up, Rebecca Gill from Rosa, the grant-making charity that funds women's and girls' organisations, tells me how things are looking in the women and girls' sector and why 51% of the population probably deserves more than 1.8% of the grants awarded to charities it's currently getting. It's not a lot, is it? <laughs> I talked to journalist Coco Khan about her new podcast, Pod Save the UK, which she's co-hosting with Nish Kumar. It's double-headers galore, among other things, in Jenny Off the Blocks. And in Rated or Dated, is there any problem that a trip to Vegas can't solve? We find out as we watch 1993's Indecent Proposal. Interestingly, I am actually recording from Vegas. <laughs> Where I've made a number of terrible life choices. <laughs> I don't need to go to Vegas to do that, Jed. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Rebecca Gill, CEO of Rosa. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. So, back in 2018, we chatted to Shay Newell from Rosa. She was smashing. But that was, well, I mean, 2018 often feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? So please could you give us a little bit of a refresher on what Rosa is, what you do and who you help. Rosa is the UK's leading grant maker for the women and girls sector. We're a champion of the women and girls sector. Our job essentially is to ensure that money is distributed to women and girls organisations. And that's what when I say the sector, I mean women's and girls organisations. And for Rosa, that means organisations, charities, social enterprises that are led by and for women and girls across the United Kingdom. Amazing stuff. You are bang up our alley. How have the past few years affected Rosa and the women and girls that you're helping? We've seen some really interesting changes. I'd say that in the last 
10 years, what we've seen is a huge drop in income going to women's and girls' organisations. And that's for a number of reasons, but the kind of cuts to local authority funding has really affected quite a lot of organisations. At the same time as seeing a huge increase in demand, not just for the kind of, I mean, services primarily, um, and that can be, you know, violence against women's services, mental health services, addiction services, and so on. But actually also the the need for more campaigning and that need for influencing and legislative change, which so many organisations that we fund are also involved in. So there's been a reduction in funding and an increase in demand for the work that these organisations do. And so organisations were really struggling to kind of keep going, really. And we know our sector is very, very dependent on women's low-paid labour and free labour. We know that there's a big, big kind of, there's a large number of volunteers in our sector. That's continued to grow. But then when COVID hit, what we found was this significant spike in demand and the kind of complexity of that demand no, not very much money coming their way. So again, an expectation that women's organisations would deliver a huge amount with not very much money. On the back of that, we've then had the cost of living crisis. And so the last decade has been really, really challenging for the kind of organisations that we fund. I would just add, though, what sector doesn't rely on women's unpaid labour? Exactly. I mean, now that's so important, Mickey, because... What we know from the organisations that we support is that they reflect women and girls' lived experience. You know, that they are invisible, they are undervalued, they are underpaid and they are everywhere. And if they didn't exist, if they downed tools, it would be hard to describe the catastrophic impact that that would have on civil society and on political life and on public life. And yet they continue to be underfunded and it's such a problem for us. So alongside National Lottery Community Fund and the Esme Fairburn Foundation, you have commissioned some new research, the first of its kind, and it was run by Sheffield Hallam University, looking into the state of funding for women's and girls' organisations across the UK. I mean, after what we've just chatted about, I'm very excited. Given how much society clearly values women, it was good news all the way, right? (laughs) That would be a no from me. Um, (laughs) We set out to do this research because what we knew was that some of our partners in the funding world were very confident that they were funding the women and girls sector. And what we knew from the women and girls organisations is they were struggling to get funding. We felt there was this kind of grey space in between where something was going wrong and we we wanted to try and name it. We wanted to try and understand what was happening. So we set out to do the research to look at where is the money going? And this is very much from a funder perspective. And it was more shocking than we were imagining. And what we found in particular was that less than 2% of charitable grants go to organisations that are led by and for women and girls. 1.8% of grant funding goes to organisations led by and for women and girls. This is an absolutely tiny amount of money. And it's really worrying. I mean, I'm glad we've got a number. Yeah. You know, and we've got, we we know that this is the first time we've actually been able to codify it and say, right, this is the number. It doesn't include the kind of government grants that people get to deliver services. That's a separate piece of work. But this is about charitable giving. This is about what we understand charities receive, what your listeners will be understanding charities receive. Organisations for for women and girls, 51% of the population, 1.8%. 
of the charitable funding. Just, you know, so we're being fair and everything, out of interest, what are the equivalent numbers for the men and boys sector? So it's a really good question. And the point is, we don't really know. So we're not saying less than 2% because this other sector over here gets 50%. What we're saying is we know what women and girls organisations do. We know the other the other really critical piece of research is that 85% of those organisations are what's called micro. They are really small. Their income is less than £10,000 a year. And for those organisations, the worry is they are small and they stay small because funders look at them and say, oh, you're really small. We won't give you very much money. You couldn't exist if we gave you more money. There's that kind of psychology that we have in the UK, maybe, which is if, if people haven't got very much money, the last thing you should do is give them more money. And if people have got lots of money, what they can really do is manage more money. And it actually, it's the complete reverse of what we need to be able to do. And it's very hard, therefore, for these organisations to be sustainable because they are endlessly on this fundraising merry-go-round where they're looking for bits of money, patching it together. They bring great people together to deliver a service or run a campaign or to do some really important influencing. And then they run out of money. Those great staff leave. They let get a little bit more money in, then they can bring in somebody else. And they're just on this constant churn of people, money, people, money, expertise going out the door, coming in the door. It's impossible for those organisations to thrive. And that's what Rosa wants to see. We don't want just want to see a survival mode. We want to see the women and girls sector thriving because what they do across the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England at local level, at regional level, national level, is absolutely phenomenal. The thing that's so important for Rosa and the reason why we invest in this sector is because every single progress in women's lives in the last 250 years has been led by women organising and by women in women's organisations. You could point to every single piece of progress and not only do we lead it, but we steward it. So you can point to who started the work on the gender, you know, tackling um, unequal pay. But also you could look at that from the beginning and the match girls and, you know, some of the trade union work in the in the late 19th century. But you also look at the last hundred years. Who's been stewarding that work? It's women's organisations. Who's been holding the politicians' feet to the fire? Who's been challenging businesses about, you know, who they're paying and how much they're paying? It is women in women's organisations. We are so crucial for progress in women and girls' lives. And what we deliver is life-saving and life-changing and life-affirming. And without the women and girls sector, there is so much of our lives that would be worse off. And yet we do it for about £4.50 a year, and we think that's unacceptable. Oh, a round of applause. I'd stand up apart from all my wires had come unplugged. (laughs) It was incredible. You'd get an ovation. Absolutely. You know, even it's always been the way. It's exactly how the first women's refuges were started. And what you've just mentioned there, that scrabble to just stay in possession of having an organisation means that they're losing their expertise and just constantly having to start again. And it does feel like it's a reflector of the way society treats women. Throw them a few crumbs so they can't complain they're getting nothing, but don't give them enough to be able to stand on their own two feet and get bigger, get louder take up more space exactly that mickey and it's it is and and also they'll just do it for free it's okay just give it to the women they'll do it for free it's okay they'll do it for free it just doesn't recognize 
the value that women and women's organisations add to our society. And it is, you know, it's shocking. It's really shocking. So are we going on strike? <laughs> no, we're not going on strike. <laughs> so what we're doing is we're campaigning for more money. Okay, we're working harder. Amazing, amazing skill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the report also says that, quote, one third of all grants for women and girls focused activity, which is worth £24.7 million, went to organisations with no specific focus on women and girls. How, how does that work? It was a really good stat, actually, because I think for me, it, it showed where some of that grey space is, where some funders are like, it's OK, we fund women and girls because we give it to these generic charities and they do great work with women and girls. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Mickey, that a lot of them do do great work with women and girls. Rose is not, we're not here knocking anybody for working with women and girls. The more money that goes to women and girls, we are here with Absolutely. the bells and whistles celebrating that. What worries us, though, or what concerns us is that is not organisations led by and for women and girls. And that is where social change happens. That is where the really, really important work happens is when they are run by women and girls for women and girls, because we're the ones who keep that issue alive. And if I can be blunt about it, for some of those generic charities, they do that work because they've recognised the need and they can get funding to do that work. When that funding disappears, another charity down the road wins the contract or whatever, or they can win a grant instead, that generic charity moves on. They've got something else to do. But the women and girls sector, we are always here. And when that issue is not fashionable anymore, we are still here. And you mentioned the women's refugees. When Erin Pizzi, you know, the founder of Refuge, when she first set that up, she was ridiculed. Mm. She was laughed at. She was chased at, you know, nobody wanted to speak to her. And now, 40, 50 years on, we are saying, of course, you must have women's refugees. That's a completely normal. But the personal cost for that woman to, to drive that forward so that we all think it's completely normal is profound. And it is women who do it. About five years ago, we were approached through one of our funding programmes by a woman called Jolie Brearley, interested in setting up. She was just started this little fledgling organisation, pregnant and then screwed. And we said, yeah, you can have a grant of £5,000. We give out through our Voices from the Frontline programme lots and lots of small grants for campaigners. We don't know what's going to take off. We don't know what's going to be successful. But we do know that Pregnant Then Screwed is a fabulous organisation. But the personal cost for Jolie of setting that up, you know, her personal lived experience, I've had enough, this is not okay, I'm taking this on. That personal cost is huge, but that's what makes her organisation so powerful and so profoundly important. There might well be an advice organisation out there that also does maternity discrimination work all very good but when the money runs out on that they're not going to do that anymore whereas pregnant men screwed is always always going to keep doing the thing for women who are facing maternity discrimination same with maternity um action as well these are really important organizations and they keep stewarding the issues in the way that the non-women specific organizations don't that's why we're concerned absolutely brilliant work those organizations do but they're not women and girls organisation. So lovely stuff, that £24.7 million, but could be, and I am going to be even more blunt than you, could be a little bit of a tick box activity as opposed to 
mainstay focus this is what we believe in this is trying to fight for long-lasting change absolutely and i think that thing about long-lasting change is really really important because the collective power of the women and girls sector is is what creates that long-lasting change so if you have a brilliant homelessness organization that does a women's project or you've got a great youth employment program that does a women's project they will help women their lives be better on that specific issue but they're helping individual women but they're not part of that social movement that creates that big change that says actually you know over the last 50 years the problem with women being homeless here is it really impacts on their their employment and then their pension and and that's what the women and girls sector can do is collectively it joins the dots covering women's lives really from cradle to grave and that's what we fund at rosa we fund organizations that are, are covering literally every kind of moment of women's lives is somewhere being stewarded by women and girls organizations that is our power okay okay so apart from causing a whole load of women to do a massive collective sky screen maybe, maybe <laughs> we can get sponsorship for some sort of flash mob sky screen i'd be up for that but how would you like to see this research used I really want funders, like big funders and government, national government, local government, the charitable funding sector, philanthropists, um, to be thinking about when we fund women and girls, what, what are we really funding here? And actually, if we're thinking of moving away from funding women and girls, let's go back and review that, you know, because I really want us to kind of surface the conversation and some action. I don't just want conversations. I want action about investing for the long term in the women and girls sector because we understand the value that it adds historically, collectively, and into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one really key audience for us. But also thinking about the people listening to your podcast, I want them to feel empowered to support the women and girls sector. And I think there's a number of ways that people can do that. You can do that locally. You can, I mean, we've got a tool on our website now as a result of this research where you can see which charities are operating in your local area. Oh, what a great tool. That's amazing. It's a brilliant tool that Sheffield Hallam um, has helped us to produce. And actually, we do what, I mean, for lots of those organisations, having people who are prepared to sit on their boards, who are prepared to donate to them locally, that is a great thing that you can do. I say another thing that people can do is think about the way in which we show solidarity to women. And if you think about the trauma, the individual personalised trauma that some some women go through when they try and do their kind of campaigning and activism, and it could be someone like Joe Lee, who's fledgling organisation setting out, show them support. You know, if you read about them in the newspaper, give them some money, support them online. But also if we think about you know, a few years ago when the campaigner, uh, Caroline Criado Perez, said, you know, there should be a woman on the on a £5 note. And she got death threats. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's insanity, you know. Now, she's not like working in a women's organisation, but that idea of actually we should be showing solidarity to women who make these really brave attempts to set things up and run things because it's really, really difficult. The other thing that people can do is to donate. They can donate to charities. They can donate to Rosa. And if you donate to Rosa... What you're donating to is an organisation with a fantastic reach. Reach to women's organisations, as I said, across the United Kingdom, we fund very small organisations, we fund large organisations. And that invisibility issue is so critical that I've mentioned earlier. It's not just that women's organisations are kind of invisible, it's that between women's organisations 
um, women's organisations, there is inequality. And what we know from our own work is that organisations led by and for black and minoritised women and organisations led by disabled women fly particularly under the radar and they're often dealing with some really quite complicated issues and they're doing it on even less money than those organisations that are white-led and not, or, or, or sort of race, what would I say, race neutral or or not specifically for black and minoritised women and girls or disabled women. And so it's also being clear about funding those organisations and Rosa does fund and makes it our business to fund those organisations that really, really struggle to get funding from other sources. So if you fund Rosa, if you if you donate to Rosa, your money will be going to organisations that are doing fantastic work now, always have done and always will be and your money will be going to those organisations on, on their kind of front line and on the ground. And that's that's what you get by, when you fund Rosa. Amazing. I guess this is a tiny bit like asking you to pick your favourite slash neediest child. I don't know. But where do you think money is most urgently needed in the women and girls sector? Oh, um, we do know that black and minoritised led organisations struggle to raise the money. I would say also, though, that those ones where um, they're doing that kind of campaigning and influencing work, you might hear about them in the press, you might read about them, you might hear them on the podcast, but they sometimes struggle to raise money. They struggle because funders don't see the value of campaigning and influencing. It's very hard to measure. And I think that the kind of that it's quite messy and it's quite convoluted and actually something that you can start campaigning for in, you know, one decade. You might not see the fruits of that labour for another decade. Unfortunately, there's a bit of a mindset among some funders, which is I want to be able to track my pound notes. And the problem with that is that if you look at even things like, you know, reporting of the gender pay gap, when I started out 20 years ago working on this issue, and there was a moment about 15 years ago when I was working in central government where Harriet Harman suggested that, you know, employers should have to report the gender pay gap. I mean, these people laughed out of town. The idea that large employers should have to report on their gender pay gap was considered absolute nonsense. And now... It's completely part of normal life and people expect to have to go on a website of a large company and have a look at their gender pay gap. It's not perfect, but that was 20, 25 years in the making of that thinking, probably even longer. There are probably women listening to this going, hang on a minute, I was talking about that in 1981. (laughs) And that's good. You know, that's how these ideas emerge, but it's not neat. So I'd say that there are some very specific organisations working on specific issues and there are some campaigning and influencing organisations. And at Rosa, we're really trying to ensure that the organisations across that spectrum get the funding that they really, really need. Like I said, not just to survive, but to thrive. Because a thriving women's sector is actually what keeps our society going. And we really, really need it to work. I know. I don't understand why some people <laughs> find that so hard to believe. Okay, so we know to go on to Rosa and donate and you are going to fund all these incredible charities. But what if, like, I'm thinking, I'd quite like a grant for my flash mob sky scream idea. I think it'd be great for women's health. Where do I go to apply and how do I go about applying for a grant from Rosa? Because we're quite small, do look at our website. We tend to run programmes where we, we kind of launch them and we publish them and then we say, come and apply for the money. We run three what we call standing funds. So they're three specific funds where when we've raised enough money, we open them for applications. 
Uh, one of them is Stand With Us. Uh, that funds organisations that work to end male violence against women and girls. And we started that with a donation from Reclaim These Streets. When Sarah Everard was murdered, Reclaim These Streets was formed. It set up a big crowdfunder and we were the beneficiaries and they raised half a million pounds and donated that to Rosa. So on the back of that, we were able to run the Stand With Us fund and we'll be fundraising again for that to run that one again soon. Our Rise Fund, it um, solely supports organisations led by and for black and minoritised women and girls. We've just distributed a million pounds to that sector over the last year. And then our Voices from the Front Line, and this might be where your flash mob comes in, Voices from the Front Line, we give small grants to organisations that want to do campaigning and influencing. And that's one we're really proud of because there's no one else really fund the women's women and girls sector to do that campaigning and influencing work. So, you know, we, we get a lot of applications from brilliant organisations. But if you can donate to Rosa, it allows us to fund more of these brilliant organisations. And our biggest challenge is getting people to give us the money so we can get it out to where it needs to be. These are these are small organisations that we fund often and they don't have loads and loads of fundraising capacity. We make it as easy as possible to, to apply for the money and to get that money out there. We steward it well and those organisations manage it well. And you can be sure that's what will happen to your money. Hit us up with the website www.rosauk.org Smashing. Oh, Rebecca, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Mickey. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by journalist and co-presenter of new podcast, Pod Save the UK, Coco Khan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to spill the tea about politics. Well, do you know what? It's really nice to talk to somebody else who is going to have that life experience of recording a weekly newsy style podcast. Either you can't talk about certain things because it's going to happen in the gap between you recording it and yeah. your release date, or you release it and within about an hour and a half, everything has changed. My background's in like newspaper journalism. I was with the Guardian for a while and you know they always have that as I'm sure you know as well like you have that kind of division of like news and features yeah. right features of that longer lead time and they last a little bit longer and whatever I've always been a features journalist by trade and so when I got the opportunity to work on this podcast I was like I want this to be like political features so things that are like a little bit like not just down to the minute gonna get interrupted. I'm sure there will be some of that um, and Nish is very kind of, he's got a really strong newsy instinct. So I'm sure there will be a bit of that. So I'm hoping that we won't have that issue that much. So that's the practical, boring answer. The real answer is when it comes to the Tories, stuff like racism, classism, nastiness, it's evergreen content, babe. Yeah. Like they just do it all the time, forever. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that bit. Actually. So I listened to your first episode yesterday, and perfect example, oh, yeah. you're actually talking to the guys from Pod Save America. Can we start there maybe with how this podcast started and how you got involved? So this podcast started with Nish. So Nish, he is a comedian, as you know, and he his, his kind of style of comedy is, is political, it's political satire. And one of the three chaps who started uh, Crooked Media, the commissioning company of Pod Save America, Pod Save the UK and another range of political podcasts, they all started as in the 
President Obama's White House. They all worked for him at the time. But one of them actually had a, always a little bit of a side gig as a stand-up himself. And he pushed that, pursued that once they all left the White House and they started podcasting a bit more. And so he met Nish during this process. Nish has got a really funny story that I'm going to kind of ruin now. <laughs> but effectively, he was going to see this stand-up do a kind of like review night of like interviews and commentary and like lols. And he was in the audience for it when he got a phone call saying, oh, Nish, they really need an urgent replacement. Can you get yourself down to this venue? Um, you know, we told them that, like, you're a great political comedian. And Nish was like, I'm already here. I'm already in the audience. And so he ended up going on stage and performing with uh, John Lovett. They had a great time. And they all became, like, bestie pals, basically. And so Britain and America share a lot. We share a common language, but we also share some similar political problems. And so there was this idea that if they ever did a UK podcast, that, like, maybe Nish should participate with it so Nish was kind of in place for a while and then it was like an audition process of who would pair up with him and I ended up getting the gig and I think the reason for that is because I already am friends with Nish and I don't mean that in a nepotistic way I just mean that so often when you listen to podcasts like it's the relationship between the two hosts that you kind of want to tune in for and like we get on like a house on fire and so that's sort of how it came in I auditioned I already knew Nish so we had a good rapport and in the end they were like yeah go on then let's get these two lefty mates on here so they can all bitch about the Tories. (laughs) (laughs) I mean I absolutely agree on that point of it is the relationship between the co-hosts that makes a podcast absolutely I should say to my fellow co-hosts who are going to be listening to this I genuinely mean that I'm not just saying that I love you all I love you. <laughs> tell me about your history with politics as as a, a hobby let's call it a hobby I mean it's a shit hobby to have at the moment but well it has been for about the last seven years but when did you first start getting into politics you know I think one of the things that is hopefully different about this podcast is that Nish is a comedian I'm a journalist but I wasn't like a Westminster journalist I was a features journalist I would like write about like how people live now how is family life changing how are people interacting with each other differently you know what does people taking up wild swimming tell us about the lack of leisure centers you know Uh, like small p politics small p politics right exactly and so you know, to answer your question in terms of my relationship to politics, it's always been in a small P capacity, really. I mean, I, I previously joined the Labour Party for a bit and then didn't. I always vote, obviously. and But I'm not, like, in the bubble. I don't, like, read Politico and then sit around at dinner table and be like, did you hear about so-and-so? Well, I, I, I don't. But I think a lot of people are closer to me and Nish than those people. And in a way, when you when p- p- politics journalism is this kind of it feels like they're all talking in code and you're being locked out of it I have often wondered if that is not necessarily I don't want to say it's too much to say it's intentional that makes it sound conspiratorial but I just mean that like that has a negative effect to the public who really want to know what's going on and just want to get part of the matter being like okay yeah that all sounds great that you have this thing in the house of lords but what does that mean for my the fact that I can't put my heating on like what does that actually mean and so Really, my relationship to politics has always been like in the journalistic space, talking about how politics is kind of failing the average person or where the average person needs politics to get involved or, you know, because politics is everywhere. It's everywhere from fat me and Ish were talking about you can't get a pint in London at 10.30 anymore. The kind of nightlife of London is kind of under attack. If you compare it to cities like Leeds and Sheffield, where it's already vibrant, you can see that there's something going on here. And yeah, childcare, that's a political issue. Lack of leisure centres, that's a political issue. So it's always been in that space since since birth. And then 
if anything, I would say actually now doing a politics podcast, which we are going to talk a bit more about Westminster, it's probably the beginning of the new big P chapter, which I'm, you know, yeah. a bit nervous <laughs> Politics is, I mean, a hard taskmaster in that sense, because firstly, there's always going to be someone who knows more about it than you do, oh, yeah. and will probably swoop in and tell you that. So it's easy to get some sort of imposter syndrome of, I don't really understand what's going on. But as well, it's just the standard of debate politically is just terrible in this country at the moment. Although that said, Helen Lewis said to me once that if you say something on a podcast, you will get infinitely less shit than if you say it on Twitter. So in a lot of ways, I think I escape the worst of people telling me what an idiot I am because they just don't listen to our podcast. I've heard that too. I've heard that. I'm really banking on it because I'm actually quite a sensitive soul. I think that loads of people on mass just tell me I'm an idiot dickhead. I think that will actually get to me. It's certainly going to be a journey. I have this feeling that sometimes in politics when people talk about the things that have gone wrong or why so-and-so had to change their mind on this, there's this language around it about like, well, that's just politics, baby. We're all down in the dirt and we're all like wrestling hogs. I don't know. I won't continue that metaphor. (laughs) Perhaps that is true, but I think a lot of actual normal people, that's not really how we want it to be. Like we want it to be like, if you say something, you should be telling the truth. (laughs) Like, you shouldn't laugh. You should be nice. You shouldn't say hateful things. When people tune into the podcast, they'll hear hosts who are like them and will will sort of fight in the way that they would want to fight rather than sometimes when you can, when I can sometimes watch the news and, you know, you see this sort of journalist taking the politician to task. Mm. Like, don't get me wrong, like, that is great. But also it's all this kind of like, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha stuff. And I, I wonder if maybe it'd be nice to have something a little different, something with a bit more heart and honesty. The way forward is to get as many people as possible involved in politics. And speaking of which, I voted yesterday and for the first time ever had to take some ID with me. Oh, yes. It was interesting because, especially with it being the local council election, I I was wondering if there might be some sort of queue. And then I thought, of course, there won't be some sort of queue because the district I live in has about a 35% turnout. It's absolutely terrible in in local council elections. And I just thought... How are we here finding a way for less people to be engaged with politics? It just blows my mind to make it harder for people to engage rather than easier, which is what you want. You want that turnout going up. You do not want that yeah. turnout going down. It's weird. Like, local elections are a, an interesting thing because they are like, obviously lots of politics happens at Westminster, but how it's administered is mm. not exclusively, but like, often at a local level and like those those things that hurt you those pinch points like the park sucks now and things that you feel acutely in your neighborhood in your home so local elections in theory should be more interesting Mm. because you can actually directly say this park this hospital you can identify what it is but yeah it's strange like there is just this feeling that like maybe it's too small fry or maybe that actually in your local area that they don't have any real power. So it's meaningless. I remember at my last local election, I was trying to be like really conscientious. I mean, I generally vote Labour anyway, but like I was trying to be like really conscientious, read every single, and I read every single party's manifesto. And then the Labour Party's one had like loads of really great stuff, but it also just said, we will build you a swimming pool. And I thought, I'm fine. You got my vote. I need a swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> You know, in a way, like, that's actually the kind of purest form of politics. Like, this is a thing, we're going to do it, we'll do it. There you go. Cheers. <laughs> Votes are fraud. 
is an example of a culture war issue that's been basically imported from the US. Yeah. Because I just I've seen no evidence that it was that it was a problem. Like I say, if anything, round here I've seen evidence that nobody can be bothered to turn up to vote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, your first podcast, you do talk quite a bit about the special relationship or however mm. we, we choose to term it. To me, it's a really interesting topic at the minute because I love America, genuinely. I mean, I've been loads of times. I think it's a fantastically interesting historical social experiment. I quite like going and watching it happen every so often. And I've got lots of friends there. I've got lots of family there. I think they have way too much sway in our politics over here. I think both the left and right are currently importing culture war issues. And although we are, you know, the same countries in many, many ways, there's so yeah. many things that are different. Religion doesn't play such a strong a role in, in our politics as it does there. The rules on guns are different. The rules on drugs are different. The rules on abortion are different. There is just so many different things. I mean, it's insane to me that you can have a spliff in the street in, in, in many places, but you can't have an abortion. I mean, that's mm. just, it's just lunacy. How do you feel about that relationship and where we are with America now? It's a really good question. And I'm always constantly flip-flopping between two things. Generally speaking, my politics are, I'm a lefty, like, you know, whatever. And uh, I've always admired the kind of brand of left-wing politics that have come from Europe, you know, Spain, Germany, mm. even. Like, you know, like in France, okay, everybody likes to make jokes about like, oh, look at them, like arguing about like their retirement age. Oh God, ours is 70. And they just think, I mean, it's not 70, just sorry. Shouldn't be saying fake news. I'm pretty sure it will be by the time we get to retire though. Go, go, yeah. I just think, no, good for them, man. Like good for them that they have that desire and that passion so baked into their culture that they're like, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm I'm off, mate. I'm going, I'm going to go like start a fight. I shouldn't say start a fight again violence is bad but you know what I mean yeah I just think that like I love the French reading an article recently about how like because the uh, bin collectors in Paris are on strike and the mayor of Paris is a socialist and the mayor of Paris is obviously like well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like effectively break their strike by Mm. hiring free workers I support the strikers they have every right to strike but it meant the bins weren't being collected so there's like rats everywhere (laughs) apparently that was like a real issue you know, don't get me wrong, I don't really love rats. But at the same time, you know, I just couldn't imagine that ever happening here. Mm. Like that would just be unheard of. And even a politician sort of saying out loud, I support the strikers, I'm going to like, that's quite unheard of these days. There's only a few kind of backbench Labour people that will do it. But anyway, yeah, I've always sort of considered myself a bit more of the sort of European brand of that. and, And I've been suspicious of the American import because even if you're a lefty in America you still seem to be like quite big on capitalism like even if you are critical of it and you want it to be reformed like your lefty is probably our century or something having said that though like I don't want to be someone who's just like griping about things that I can't change and that you know like the fact of the matter is we live in an age of mass media communication we share a language America has a outsized influence in the world. That's just how it is. So now I'm just trying to be like strategic about it and be like, okay, well, this is how it is. How do we all work together for kind of shared aims? And then hopefully within our kind of, you know, individual situations that we can kind of make our like little um, amendments based on our own national character and what is required. But generally speaking, perhaps it would be better for now to be like, you know what, Democrats in America, Labour voters here, let's all bandy together, even if we're a bit different. I can't believe that when Trump went, I thought, oh, I don't have to think about America for now for four years. It's safe. 
and then almost immediately Roe v. Wade fell. It's a good cautionary tale about how your rights can be mm. eroded. We are seeing sort of similar things play out in the UK, and maybe it's not like as pronounced as Roe v. Wade, but when you look at how they treat refugees and migrants, like you always have to ask yourself, well, could they get away with that yeah. with us if we wanted to? And I mean, the clampdown on protesters is a really good example. It, it does seem like, yeah, you can protest only when we say and you say what we want you to say mm. and all of that, those kind of um, retraction of free speech, which we're seeing play out. So like, yeah, I mean, America is definitely a great cautionary tale yeah. uh, about what you can lose. What do you make of Labour? Because actually Keir Starmer has specifically come out on the drugs front and said absolutely no, basically, which I thought was a bit disappointing. But because I think it's got, like I say, I think it's a conversation worth having. Because you can't, on the one hand, argue that we should do more to stop young black men being stopped and searched Mm -hmm. and arrested and then B, clamp down on the drugs laws, which mostly involves arresting and stopping and searching young black men. There's like a yeah. Gordian knot there that we don't seem to be interested in in trying to untie. I, I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the question about drugs is a really, really good one and a really, really big issue. I mean, you know, like at the minute there, there, there was this massive clump down on laughing gas. And mm. again, that's one of those. I think it's a tactical thing from the Tories when they've got nothing else to offer. They'll just always fall back on law and order. We're the party of law and order. But don't get me wrong, those little pellets being around is annoying. Mm. Like that is genuinely annoying and that something does need to be done about those stupid little pellets being hung around. But the idea that like a young person's life can be ruined with a criminal record because they got high for 15 seconds in the park. I mean, that's a bit dark, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, Starmer's, he is, you know, director of he was director of public prosecution, so I, he, he's he's the law guy, yeah. and that does play well with the public mostly. Mm. So I don't know if you were being generous, you would say it's all a tactic. He just needs to get in, but once he gets in, he can be a bit more liberal and be a bit more. <laughs> maybe that's the case. I've definitely found. I don't know. I just when I saw a couple of days ago that he U-turned on student debt, and I yeah. just had like flashbacks to Nick Clegg I'm like it just keeps happening the same thing keeps happening yeah. over and over again. Uh, so I don't know I mean I suppose it remains to be seen we've still got another year or so until oh actually... god how can it still be so long <laughs> <laughs> we haven't seen a manifesto yet we haven't had so I mean there's, there's still a long way to go but I, I hear you I hear you it sometimes can feel a bit disappointing to to sort of feel like the, the one party that has any chance of turning this around yeah there's so many opinions that are like, is this is this in science? Is this from science? Yeah. You know that like, the kind of over-policing, particularly of like, you know, Class D drugs, doesn't stand up to any scrutiny. It doesn't help. Anything. It's not helping social cohesion. It's not doing anything. So mm-hmm. why? Why do we keep doing it? And also, you know, there's always money for things like that, but there's not money to like prosecute rapists. Oh, my God. (laughs) Policing and the NHS, something's got to happen. They're both teetering on the edge. And particularly as a woman, what is going on at the Met Police? It's absolutely. It's just insane. One of the things that has been, and I'd be interested in your opinion in this, there are a number of kind of feminist groups who support the idea of like abolishing the police. Obviously, that's a very strong slogan. I think maybe if you say that to people, they're like, what do you mean? So there's no one that I talk to when someone like robs my house. And that's not actually what they're saying, obviously. What they're saying is like, certain powers of the police should be taken away and given to specialists and you know sexual violence obviously in the hands of the police is not going well so maybe we should give that 
fit to someone else or some organization that's trained in these things maybe it's women-led what are your thoughts on that I'm still quite conflicted but I'd be interested to hear what you think when sort of in 2020 when the whole defund the police argument came over here I thought that was actually quite an interesting example of why things are really different here in America and obviously there are loads of things that we issues around police and justice and things like that for example that I mean they vote for their DAs and things like that there's all sorts of things that are like tied in that that we don't have so the system's different but I mean there's something clearly rotten in the Met but not just the Met in a lot of organizations it has to be something institutional because you can't keep putting women in these positions of power and then it's not changing I mean a lot of what happened at the Met happened under Cressida Dick so while I'd like to believe that putting women in charge would would help it seems like it's the whole system that needs an overhaul that said I don't think they need less money I think they just need to refocus I think it's unbelievably complicated and it's one of those issues that I'm kind of prepared to say I don't know enough about to formulate a proper opinion except that I just want it to work better I want it to work better for women I want it to work better for minorities I want it to work better yeah yeah yeah. absolutely absolutely no I mean I, I also don't feel like I have the answer I hope that during this course of doing this podcast for the next year, like it's an issue that we can return to and yeah. find out because it's really complicated. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's the outcome that matters, right? Like mm. sexual assault is currently decriminalised in effect because mm. there's just such little prosecutions happening. Yeah. Then um, there's something needs to be done and whether that's moving it away to another group, okay, but who is that group? How is that group funded? Mm. Are we sure that group's going to be any better? Then are those are all questions that I guess need to be asked. Um, yeah. It, yeah. There's so many urgent issues, Hannah. It's really very stressful. Very stressful. <laughs> Tell me where people can find more about Podsafe the UK and about yourself. So if people want to hear more about Podsafe the UK, we are very, very loud on the internet. We're trying to be. Um, so you'll find us on all the kind of regular uh, social platforms at Podsafe the UK. And if you want to find me personally, I will only receive good vibes, bad vibes. <laughs> not welcome please direct those to nish kumar um and i'm at my handle is at coco by name so b-y-n-a-m-e i don't know what it means when i set it up i was like coco by name coco by nature i thought that was funny and now i doesn't make any sense like it makes no sense whatsoever you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we are slam dunking the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sports. First up, let me just say straight off the bat, I feel like a bit of a dickhead for last week's sports section, sports with a Z, in which I was perhaps a little mean about Emma Raducanu and her 58 word press conference. I mean, I do stand by my comments that it wasn't a great look, but literally a day after I recorded that section, she announced on social media that she would miss the summer's events, including Wimbledon and the French Open, while she recovers from surgery on her hands 
and ankle. Raducanu has struggled with her fitness since winning the US Open back in 2021 with this recurring injury on a bone in both hands which has been hampering her performance. It ended her 2022 season early and obviously we'll see what happens after this period of recovery. Surgery became the only option she said after playing through the pain and reducing training time in a bid to heal. Alas it wasn't enough. It's probably a moral to this story like you never know what someone's dealing with behind closed doors so maybe shut your face offered or something like that but this isn't about me we wish her all the best and hope for a speedy recovery okay let's get this particular maddening story out of the way so we can finish on a high afterwards and thank you to listener melanie carr for bringing this to my attention on twitter if we thought women's football was headed in the right direction and i have got a good news story on this in just a minute all the attention here is focused on the upper echelons of the game and we hear rather a lot less about how it's going a bit lower down the football pyramid i mean this is the same in the men's game but look let's spare a thought for colney Heath ladies football club who play in the fifth tier of the aforementioned pyramid so that's still pretty high up and considerably higher than their male counterparts colney heath fc who play in the spartan south midlands football league which covers tiers 9 to 11 Nonetheless, when they rocked up for work on Saturday to play their final match of the season they found they were unable to play at their usual venue because there was a bouncy castle on the pitch. A bouncy castle in honour of our newly coronated king. It was put there by the club, by the way. It wasn't, you know, just like kids or whatever messing around. Uh, Yeah, it's almost certainly what King Charles III would have wanted. And look, I love a bouncy castle as much as the next person. I'm not a monster. But what a way to feel disrespected. Imagine arriving at your office and being told to move it along because someone is playing giant Jenga and eating a poorly cooked sausage in your work area. It's a lot to process, I know. We are genuinely upset, the team tweeted, that Colney Heath FC decided that a bouncy castle takes precedence over a women's football match at Tier 5. Moved along, however, they were to a nearby park. Their defence, well, we told them they were going to have to play somewhere else ages ago. There's been a misunderstanding. And lads, and this is me talking here, that is your misunderstanding. <laughs> if you thought that would have made everything square. Jesus Christ. An unnamed club spokesperson told the BBC that the park they were moved along to didn't meet their league rules or regulations. They added that they understood that the club wanted to celebrate a national event. Could the bouncy castle not have been moved elsewhere within the ample space available to them, however? Did it really have to be on the pitch? Who knows? All I can tell you is that from the club's Twitter feed, they had a great day celebrating the King's coronation. Some good news to end on. Two massive double-headers have been announced in the last week and I want to say I'm here for it. And more of this, please. First up, the London Lions. You might remember they're a London-based basketball team. I spoke to Liam McDermott on the podcast around this time last year. They're a really exciting prospect for basketball in the UK, I think, having just had a ton of investment pumped into the club. And they're doing great things to promote the women's game as well as the men's. Both the men's and women's teams will play a doubleheader on Sunday, this coming Sunday the 14th, at the O2 Arena for their respective BBL and WBBL playoff final games after winning their semi-final rounds. They'll be facing the Leicester Riders. Elsewhere, it was announced by Tottenham Hotspur last week that they will host the Premier League's first 
ever men's and women's doubleheader at their stadium on Saturday the 20th of May. The women's match has been upgraded from Leighton Orient's Brisbane Road Stadium where they normally play to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and they will play after the men's team take on Brentford for their final home game of the season. The women will face Reading. It's a bit of a shame that the women have to play second because inevitably a lot of people watching the men's game will leave afterwards to have dinner or, I don't know, find a nearby bouncy castle. But it's a bloody lovely stadium, so hopefully a decent number of people will want to stick around and soak up the atmosphere. This is good PR for Spurs, who are, it's fair to say, a bit of a shambles at the moment on the men's side and pretty close to the relegation zone on the women's side. But I am absolutely not against people doing things for the sake of PR if it is a good thing. And this is what I hope the near future of men's and women's football is going to look like. So massive props to Spurs and the London Lions for leading the way and actually doing something. Round of applause. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week had much more hippopotamus content than I was expecting. (laughs) Was not expecting any. (laughs) Thrilled by the amount. This week we watched 1993's Indecent Proposal. Although you'd be mistaken for thinking it was made in the 80s. Probably because that's when the book it was based on was released. It was directed by Adrian Lynn, who only very recently appeared in this very podcast because he also directed... Flashdance. Correct. And it was written by, hold the fuck up, a woman, Amy Holden-Jones. At the time, she gave an interview to the LA Times saying Demi Moore's character represents, quote, the ultimate female fantasy. Okay, Amy, (laughs) if you like... (laughs) How many other women had Amy met at this point in her life? <laughs> so she also wrote something called, uh, I don't know, I want to say Slumber Party Massacre or something. I mean, if that helps. <laughs> wow. Much like a recent rated or dated Sliding Doors, the film benefited from a high concept premise, meaning it was suited to features in newspapers and daytime phone-ins about whether fucking a millionaire for money would be a blessing or a curse. This probably goes some way to explaining a worldwide box office take of more than $266 million because it sure as shit wasn't the reviews that drove people to the cinema. Mickey's mate, Susan Faludi, objected to the movie's positioning of the female character, but to be clear, it wasn't just the feminists who hated it. Rolling Stone's Peter Travers called it shameless sexist propaganda, which he said sent a simple message, quote, you never know with these bitches. <laughs> Here's a fun fact. In lieu of any actual positive quotes, Paramount Pictures put part of Travers' review on the poster. Oh, I love it when this happens. Quote, another date night here, editing out the rest of the sentence, which said, in the trash tradition of Fatal Attraction. Oh, Amazing. Can I tell you a, a little tangential story about my mate who used to write film review? I'll, I'll leave his name out of it. No, actually, his name's important. He won't mind. His name is Mark Sutherland. He's a very, very bigwig music journalist these days. But he started off writing reviews for Smash Hits and for Just Seventeen. And he went to see the film Beethoven 2, the follow-up about a big dog to the film about a big dog. He didn't mm-hmm. like it. wasn't really his scene. 
But he did use the phrase, if you liked Beethoven, you'll love this in his one star review. (laughs) And they pulled it out and they put it on billboards across the country with his name on it. (laughs) Wow. I love that. I always think that is quite a damning, as indeed it was in his case, that is quite a sort of potentially damning review, isn't it? I always remember Ben Elton at the Brit Awards saying, if you liked that, like, Chumbawamba song, you're going to love the rest of their album. (laughs) And thinking, like, (laughs) if you liked it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. If you're wondering if Indecent Proposal has gained a cult following in the intervening years, perhaps its 34% rating at Rotten Tomatoes answers that question. The consensus reads, quote, lurid, but acting with gusto, Indecent Proposal has difficulty keeping it up beyond its initial titillating premise. Titillating? Okay, Rotty Tees, if you like. (laughs) None of this critical mauling mattered a jot to Robert Redford, who, pretty bravely or astutely, depending on how you look at it, took a back-end deal, meaning he took, and sources vary on the exact amount, between 10 and 15% of the gross meaning he made between 20 and $25 million from the film. For anyone who can't be bothered to work out the exchange rate, that's a night with between 20 and 25 women. (laughs) I'm thinking most people know the plot of Indecent Proposal, whether they want to or not, but here goes. Love's young dream, David and Diana, that's Woody Harrison and Debbie Moore, have fallen on hard times thanks to an economic downturn. The bank threatens to foreclose on their dream home, which David is designing, because he's an architect, don't you know? In what I'd like to criticise as a terrible move, but is actually exactly the sort of stupid shit I would do, (laughs) they decide to go to try to gamble their way out of trouble and head to Vegas. Cue saxophone. Things go well at first, and David makes enough money for them to fuck on, but uh uh-oh, they lose it all. What's to be done? But hang on. Here comes a handsome, brackets, discuss, mega rich dude, John Gage, played by Redford, who's got his eye on Diana and offers a million quid to, quote, spend the night with her. The couple soon agree and bring in their lawyer, played by Oliver Platt, to hash out the terms. This includes what might happen if Gage can't get an erection, but not, crucially, what spend the night with could actually entail. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to what a conversation about consent looked like in the 1990s. (laughs) David soon changes his mind, maybe because Platt's character decides the best thing he can do in the interim is get him drunk and obsess about it. (laughs) Diana has a wobble too. But thanks to a double-headed coin, the rich prick gets his way, which I think makes it rape, but never mind, it's the 90s. How does this affect David and Diana's relationship? Well, needless to say, badly. David goes off to live with the green-eyed monster and Diana is left sobbing a dangerous amount for a woman sitting on a chair made entirely of cardboard. (laughs) Old moneybags won't leave her alone and takes a hint on wooing from Adrian Cronow, interrupting her teaching lessons to people trying to get citizenship because nothing is as important as this guy's prick. It all comes to a head at the weirdest function ever when David (laughs) arrives, buys a hippo with the sex million pounds and then tells Diana she can have a divorce. This function, by the way, is taking place in daylight. By the time Diana and Gage leave, it's the night time. With him taking a hint from old eye bags himself, Rick, and magnanimously giving Diana to David. 
And by the time she gets out of the car, it's dawn. What the fuck sort of function have they just been to? Where was it? Well, that's what happens when it's hosted by Billy Connolly. <laughs> They've been dogging at the zoo. That's what's happened to filthy. Anyway, she and David get back together. The end. Or is it? Who cares? That's had you seen this before? I had not seen it before. I actually had seen it before. I think I was probably about 15 when I saw it. It was a while after, I reckon, it was either one of my brothers rented it from the video shop because they thought they might see Demi Moore's tits. Indeed, they did. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to them, they were bang on the money. Or it was just on TV and I watched it. Suffice to say, I've not watched it in the intervening years and the way I feel about it now is quite different to how I felt about it age 15. Age 15, just to say, also, Robert Redford looked like the Crypt Keeper to me. <laughs> so, like, so, so yeah. quite concerning how differently I feel about that now. Age, as well. I mean, age 46, I'm worried about his hips, to be honest with you. <laughs> I had never seen this before, just to get that in. But, you know, he is supposed to be this dashing older man. He was 55 when he made this, which is exactly the same age woody harrelson was when he made three billboards outside ebbing missouri and you know he's definitely aged much much better i mean i know he had a cowboy hat on so that helps i shouldn't complain because redford hasn't had a load of work done which a load of people have so you know good for him but he's not quite as dashing at 50 as perhaps many men at 50 would be i feel like they knew it as well because whenever they direct the camera in redford's direction it is like someone has smeared vaseline on the lens he's got this weird soft focus about him like those you know those portraits you used to be able to get done in shopping centers mm. like here's marjorie she's 47 you can barely make out her features but doesn't she look great and yeah i feel like he had that kind of soft focus going on whenever the camera panned over to him i was struck by how handsome he was compared to like when i saw it last age 15 when i was like this man is like Tutankhamun like you know I've never seen anyone older than this man this is no this wouldn't happen and so I was like oh no he's quite handsome actually he's a pretty handsome guy I think he's kind of mm. handsome I looked at what a young Robert Redford looked like and he kind of looks a bit Woody Harlson there, there are some I mean, he was pretty oh, he looked he really was pretty Pitt. beautiful when he was young wasn't he yeah quite Brad Pitt in fact haven't they played relatives in films before him and Brad Pitt probably he's got the jaw mm-hmm. He's definitely got a jaw, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've sexually objectified the man, which, uh, cool. tick, that's that's one thing down. Mm. Well, one of the men. One of them I sexually objectify all the live long day. I feel like we've already covered that, Hannah. It seems, it seems <laughs> weird to do it again. That doesn't matter. <laughs> the interesting thing about that Rotten Tomatoes quote was the idea that this was pitched as titillating. I think if they took this idea... And they were going to set it now because apparently at some point someone was talking about making doing a remake. And they bought the age of Robert Redford up. They bought the amount of money on offer down. And they put all of the action somewhere between him making the proposition and her agreeing to go with the proposition. This would be an absolutely blinding stage play. Mm. I think the premise of it, the most interesting things about this is not discussed in the film. The 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 issue of what she is consenting to, the issue of how they're going to deal with this as a couple going forward. You know, that conversation is crazy interesting and that is what doesn't happen in this film. You couldn't do it now because a mobile phone would kill this because he'd just send her a WhatsApp and say, oh, do you know what? I've been thinking about this and actually turns out I'm not really up for it. Could you not fuck that old man, please? 
Well, I mean, there's ways around that. I think the fact that it is a million pounds or a million dollars, a hundred thousand, is still life changing for a lot of people. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that the higher your stakes are on what you need to survive, like the, the more you're struggling, the lower that price would be for so exactly. many people. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and then there's conversation to be had about sex work, sex yeah. work around yeah, that, totally. that this film just doesn't happen. And like I say, doesn't do much for me, but 55-year-old Robert Redford does something for Jen, so make it like 80... <laughs> A tenner? You know, make it 80-year-old someone or, you, you know... 50p. Uh, yeah. I'll pay you, Robert Redford. No, um, <laughs> it's <laughs> look. I just want to be clear on this. I was just like, okay, he's quite a handsome guy. He doesn't actually do it for me, just to be clear. But uh, I could okay. see sure. objectively that he is a good-looking man. Let's move on, shall we? The problem with this is that, to quote, spoiler alert: the dearly departed Logan Roy. They are not serious people. Like this, this is just like everything about this screams like. <laughs> Quite a lot could go wrong here, couldn't it? <laughs> like, and yet, mm. and yet, what the fuck are they thinking? Well, we don't know. That's what I'm saying. We don't know. It would be really interesting to know what they're thinking. But this film doesn't show us what they're thinking. The thing that I find most offensive about this film, and there is quite a lot about it that is pretty offensive. The thing that I find most offensive about it is that she, the only female character, Demi Moore, uh, Diana has such little substance about her or such little agency that the idea is that she must end up with one of these hideous men. She's got to be with one of them. She can't just go, actually, you're fucking awful. You literally pimped me out to an like to some guy for some money. You're fucking awful. You thought you could buy sex with me because that shit gets you off. And yet I have to be with one of you. Like, I can't just go, you're both gross. Uh, well, you. I mean, I, I agree off. halfway with you there. Yeah, I don't really agree. I, I don't agree that, that David no. is gross. I, I agree that the film shouldn't position her as having to pick between two men. But I don't agree that David is gross. See, I agree that David is gross, but I don't think he pimps her out. I think Diane is also awful. The depiction of love as having yes, to be violent is, yeah. is horrific. Yeah. And when yeah. Yeah, John please. Gage absolutely like, oh, I must have this woman, I must have this woman, I'm like... One, you don't know this woman. And two, she's an yeah. arsehole who held a knife at her hus- to her husband. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? For leaving, yeah. and, like, oh, but no, but it was sexy. on the floor. She sets his boxes. Well, they just land. I don't think he pipped her out. Definitely. I don't think. I think I it's her that. decision. Yeah. Mostly. I think I would feel quite sad in that situation if, I mean, I wouldn't be in that situation for lots of reasons. I think I would feel quite sad if my husband was like, all right then yeah cool off you pop i don't think he ever is go and bring home that bacon but if you wanted to do it and your husband told you no you also wouldn't be happy no but i suppose that's the point isn't it like you uh ideally people will find themselves in in relationships where they're on a sort of like same kind of vibe about what Mm. they uh do and don't want in terms of other people i mean she's basically reduced to such an irrelevancy that in that scene where he turns up at the restaurant and they just talk amongst themselves and they're like trying to send her inside and she basically doesn't talk to David. It's like she doesn't even know him. She's the person who that scene should be about Mm. and yet she says basically nothing in it. She's reduced to an absolute irrelevancy. It becomes about two men fighting over a woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is a twat as well. Like everyone in this film... Isabella, for sure. And also, like, you know, then, of course, 
he's horribly jealous and he treats her like, you know, she's done something wrong when he was totally, you know, mm. until he wasn't obviously signed up to it. This horrible display of like machismo with the two of them like oh, fighting over her and she has to be with one of them. And yeah, it's, I don't know. I agree. It is, it, it is an interesting concept in some ways. But yeah. It's basically also, like, like the most tragic episode of Grand Designs I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and all of what we've been talking about is really interesting. The moral conundrum, etc., etc. But I feel the main takeaway from this film for me was the fucking hippo. Right? I watched this film and then I went to the loveliest, mildest stag do available to anyone. And I brought some... <laughs> Some oomph to the party by immediately going, have you either of you seen Indecent Proposal? Chat, chat, chat. And my friend Miller says, blah, 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 and mentions something about an expensive wine. And he went, oh, is that what they spend the million dollars on? And I say, no, they spend it on a hippo. And he's like, sorry, what? And I'm like, yeah, there's this bit <laughs> where their dog has kind of a Vietnam style flashback to hippopotamuses, or certainly that's what it looks like. And then, yeah, Woody Harrelson buys a hippo at an auction run by Billy Connolly. And Miller was like, were you watching this in a fever dream or something? Because none of this rings true. And I'm pretty sure I've seen this film. And I'm like, I know, I don't know why more people don't talk about the hippo element of Indecent Proposal. Because it's huge. It's huge. I had forgotten about the hippo and indeed Billy Connolly. Forgotten about all of that. Could not stop laughing. When he's on the sofa with his dog, (laughs) he gets the little toy hippo. And the dog, he shows it to the dog and then suddenly there's like a real hippo, footage of a real hippo. It genuinely looks like the the dog is having some sort of flashback. And then it happens again. And I, I was crying with laughter, which I don't think was the desired result of any of indecent proposal. It does have one line that's funny, even though it's probably quite sexist. And it's delivered by Billy Bob Thornton when she first goes to gamble with Robert Redford. He says something like, oh, you've lost her now. You know, she's not coming back. Yeah. And Woody Harrelson looks at and he goes, I'm only shitting with you, mate. The other thing that really struck me about this film, and, you know, maybe maybe I'm shallow because I'm not really picking up on the moral conundrum thing because I think... That is interesting, but they also don't unpick it very well, as Hannah has already very eloquently described. But yeah, why is Woody Harrelson's character always wearing two shirts at once? It's a very weird, like, clothing Oh, it's really 90s. Oh, it's a really 90s choice. It looks hot, though. It looks hot. He's hot in this, though. He's very hot. No, I I meant he looks too hot. Like, it's overheated. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) That as well. Uh, Yeah. Several people I went to school with wore several shirts. Oh, yeah, that okay. was a really sort of niche 90s fashion. There's a scene where he's just wearing the one shirt, but he's staring forlornly at another shirt. Like, <laughs> he shouldn't put it on. <laughs> Can we go back to how creepy Robert Redford's character is? They yeah. like, I know yeah. Adrian Lynn, Adrian Lyne, has got previous on really creepy guys like mm-hmm. Nick following Alex home in the car when she's on a bike, etc., etc. But like, Oh, it's it's awful. It's proper stalker. And yet we are once mm. again sold. And I know the 90s, the 90s, we are once again sold that this works and she ends mm. up in a relationship yeah. with him. And that made me very angry. He also coerces her essentially into sex by, by using the cheating coin, which is then seen as she's just like, oh, at the end, like, oh. and you just think, oh, yeah, just laugh that off. That's just a joke. Yeah. The other thing about this that I find so repulsive is that at the end where he's like, oh, I've done this loads of times to try and be like, no, I'm, I'm good. if you love someone, set them free kind of thing. Like, off you go. No, he makes her think that 
for the uninitiated, he makes her believe that he's done this loads of times and that he's this massive playboy fuckhead, whatever. So she goes, oh, no, you're disgusting. I'm going to go back to my husband kind of thing. Like, A, the writing was on the fucking wall. He is creepy and disgusting. B, I think we're supposed to feel sympathy for him at that point. Oh, I think he's supposed to be, it's supposed to be seen as a bit like Rick in Casablanca. Like I say, it's this great magnanimous Mm. gesture. You know, what a good guy. He's won. And yet he's going to not take the victory. He's going to give it to the But also, she doesn't buy it. That's why she kisses him. She doesn't buy what he's just told her. She knows it's a lie. It's interesting, Hannah, that you said Susan Faludi, my pal. God, I wish she was Mm. my pal. She's amazing. Didn't like the film. Oh, I'm surprised. Color me surprised. Uh (laughs) But also, I feel like they tried to get around it because backlash is in the film when she's at the estate agent. Someone, a woman is reading it. Maybe that's why it was on her radar. Maybe someone's like, Susan, have you seen your uh, your books in this film? And she's like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely enraged. Yeah. Oh, God, the, the blistering, eloquent rage. Oh, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it, Susan. Call, Susan, call me. Will you answer my calls, please, Susan? <laughs> Don't make me track you down at an auction. <laughs> but I do have a question. Mm-hmm. Rated or dated? Oh, Dated. I thought you were actually going to ask me if I would fuck someone for a million pounds. And I was like, Hannah, I've not had long enough to think about this. Jen, you've had since 1993. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say about 1998. Yeah, dated. Horribly, horribly, horribly dated. 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 Yeah, agreed. Dated. Makes me kind of pleased. There, I mean, obviously, there are, there are definite bad things, negative things about what, the fact we're moving to a cashless society. But at least Demi Moore <laughs> and Woody Harrelson won't have fucked on it. That's... <laughs> That's something to take away, isn't it? What's coming next? I've seen it on the schedule and I don't want to hear it out loud. (laughs) I'm sorry in advance. It's Daddy Daycare. I didn't know what this was, so I googled it. And according to Netflix, this was the plot description it gave. After losing his job, a stay-at-home dad jumps at the chance to start a daycare centre, inviting new kids and all kinds of shenanigans into his home. I am up for a film that contains <laughs> all kinds of shenanigans. <laughs> well, you might not be saying that next week, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Standard Issue for all women.